Welcome to the Fire Learning Trail. The Fire Learning Trail is brought to you by the Fire Learning Network, the Consortium of Appalachian Fire Managers and Scientists, the Nature Conservancy, and the USDA Forest Service. Your guides on this trail are Greg Phillip and Chase Frisbee from the USDA Forest Service, and I'm Jen Bundy with the Consortium of Appalachian Fire Managers and Scientists. Welcome back to the Fire Learning Trail podcast. In this chapter, we're going to be discussing the people who protect our homes and forests from wildfire. People like Greg and Chase, who are here with me again. These guys are both wildland firefighters. So guys, why don't we start from the beginning and let's talk about what exactly is a wildfire? What does it mean and what's the difference between a wildfire and a controlled burn? Because as wildland firefighters, you're responsible for both. You've been given what's called a red card certification, which allows you to both start controlled burns and stop wildfires, right? So let's go back to science class and review how fires start and burn. We have the fire triangle. There's got to be fuel. Not everyone's accustomed to looking at the forest as fuel, and by all means, we're not trying to have you look at the trees and the scenery here as fuel. But but that's what the leaves and the sticks and branches are in the fire environment. Um, you got to have spark or heat. So you know, in a natural fire, that would be lightning. No volcanoes around here, so I don't believe we'll have that as a cause of a fire. And then there'll be oxygen. So basically, uh, what a firefighter would do to extinguish a fire is to take one of those legs out of your fire triangle. The most common way we do that is by removing the fuel from the fire. The firefighters will go through with chainsaws and hand tools and remove the fuel down to mineral soil and then either burn out the remaining fuel between that fire line and the main fire or they're digging that close enough to the main fire that it'll just go out as it gets to it if it's not burning too intensely. The second part of that is the weather topography and the fuels and we've discussed all that at different stops along the way the topography basically being the lay of the land you know the aspect has a big part of that southern and western slopes are going to burn burn more intensely and readily than northern and eastern slopes weather the two most important weather categories we're looking at is relative humidities basically any uh, anything under 35 percent relative humidity becomes a fire day if the fuels are dry and then the fuels which we've already talked about are those leaves, sticks, branches, and dead and down material on the forest floor. So again, to remove the fuel from a fire, you would build that fire line and then burn out. You can remove the heat from a fire by dropping with the helicopters and then getting folks in there to make sure that it's penetrated where it needs to go. Or you can remove the oxygen. A lot of times when it's real dry and we have heavy logs on fire, you can bury them and then snuff them out. Uh, With wildfire, You don't really have control over when they occur, so the humidities could be really low, the winds could be really high, and you could potentially get that higher fire behavior, which would would do some damage to the forest. Uh, You know, if there wasn't any homes and other values at risk in the area, we could just let fires go, but with so much population moving into this interface in between the forest and people's homes, um, that's when it becomes important for this fire suppression. There are times when we don't have to get out there and suppress fires when they're on national forest so they can provide some of these benefits. When managed properly, the fires can provide food and water, cover and space for wildlife. Control burns help to reduce the fuel in the forest floor. A fuel we, um, we're talking about leaves, um, dead and down limbs off trees, um, dead trees that are on the forest floor and 
what we want to do is is burn up that material on our terms to keep the wildfire from coming through when it would burn it too hot and be more of a devastating fire. Um, control burns are are usually low intensity, but it's still able to um, maintain those species that depend on the fire. So if we can plant a control burn in an area, it will help out. Uh, it'll help the area keeping from a bad, devastating wildfire when we can burn it lower intensity. There's a lot of planning that goes into our controlled burns. Uh, the public thinks a lot of times we're just out there burning and doing things without really looking into the planning process. Uh, we have to we have to do smoke modeling to see where our smoke's going to go. We we can't put smoke into populated areas and towns. We do a lot of broadcasting on the radio and planning up front to make sure we're not going to impact impact the public. We have to have the the right relative humidity, the right wind. We have, um, we've got thresholds we have to go through um, with too high wind, um, too low of relative humidity, and all, all that has to be, be right, and the timing has to be right before we can do a controlled burn. So there's very few times a year we, we can do these burns when it's, when it's ideal and optimum weather to keep from impacting people and burning the areas too hot. My rule of thumb when burning is to try to put the least intense fire on the ground. Uh, what happens is a lot of these forests that haven't burned in a long time, the fuel loading is so out of whack with the normal fuel loading that it's going to get in more intense in places where it needs to. So we don't need to we don't need to try to make a more intense fire. Another benefit of prescribed burning is it can re- reduce invasive species. Uh, some examples of invasive species here are kudzu or oriental bittersweet, um, miscanthus, tree of heaven, polonia. There's a lot of, lot of um, invasive species in this part of the country. This area that you're looking at is known for its views and trails, and these controlled burns have helped to keep the area from being overgrown and keep the, keep the great views. I'll remind you of the hashtag goodfire, G-O-O-D-F-I-R-E, because prescribed burns and wildfires that are managed at the proper times um, can do a lot of good to the forest out here. Uh, It might seem counterintuitive to a lot of folks, but sometimes, um, like that bald knob fire, uh, the best thing that could happen to those woods is a burn could go through them. Wildfires that start on the top of a mountain, you know, a lot of our lightning strikes hit on a ridge top, and it will just slowly, we call it back in fire, it's... When fire's going down slope, it's moving a lot slower. So that's usually a lower intensity fire. And that's what we try to mimic when we're doing our control burns. We try to start at the top of a slope on the ridge top and, and bring the fire down slowly. Those wildfires that get started down slope or mid slope are the ones that are usually a lot more intense and and are a lot harder to stop because they've got the slope, the terrain, and the wind, everything lines up, and those fires move a lot faster up slope. And how do you plan for the smoke that's caused by a controlled burn or manage the smoke if you're managing a wildfire for resource benefit? So the smoke from fires can cause health conditions, health problems. And then there's also just the nuisances of smoke. If you're hanging your laundry out to dry and it smells like smoke the next day, you may not be too happy. Uh, it could impact a little league baseball game in the springtime uh, if the smoke doesn't get out of the way. So we're really, really keyed into this smoke management to make sure that we do this work on a day when the smoke won't be an issue. 
the state of North Carolina has smoke management guidelines. The North Carolina Forest Service is in charge of, of looking over those guidelines. And primarily, it's the mixing height and the transport winds, which are the two most important factors for smoke management. So we're talking with the State Forest Service. We're talking with the National Weather Service, the local fire offices out of Greenville-Spartanburg, um, about these forecasts to make sure that the smoke isn't going to be a problem for the public. Uh, other organizations that help us prescribe burn around here are the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. Uh, they have a lot of expertise. They've been burning for a long time here in the mountains of North Carolina. The Nature Conservancy provides help on prescribed fires. Uh, more details about the planning of these fires. I always joke it's kind of like planning a wedding. You spend a lot of time in the planning uh, aspects of the burns. You have to have all the people. You have to have the right place. You have to have the control lines. Uh, and this could take months, um, months of work to prepare for one of those one of these prescribed burns. And before that, a lot of environmental analysis takes place to make sure we're burning in the right place. And so that process could take into the years to make sure we're doing this in the right place. So to add on about smoke management guidelines, we're lucky enough to have two air quality specialists that work right here in Asheville for the National Forest in North Carolina. About two to three days before a prescribed burn, I will visit with them and I'll fill out a form. It's a smoke analysis request form basically has an, has an estimation of the amount of fuels and what weather we're expecting for the duration of the burn. And what those air quality analysts can do is they'll plug that into computer models and it'll consume the fuels, it'll produce the emissions, and then based on the meteorological, the weather forecasts, it will pump the smoke up into the atmosphere and then disperse it based on the weather parameters. So we have a really good idea and the models are getting better and better to tell us where the smoke is going. Um, one thing that we don't have any control over is that nighttime smoke dispersion. As the sun goes down, the atmosphere cools, that smoke will settle down in the valleys. You probably noticed that driving down the mountains in the mornings when it's cold. Um, people smoke from their chimneys will just raise so far and then flatten out. And we can have the same problem on prescribed burns, so it's really important for us to do those models for two to three days so we don't sock in some of these communities that are close to the national forest with the smoke from our prescribed burns. Yeah, you mentioned a controlled burn is like a wedding. I've always compared it more to like a shuttle launch from NASA because of all the weather components that have to go into place and how all the right people have to be in exactly the right shape and everything. It just takes so much planning, and it could be scrubbed for what seem like minor changes in humidity or temperature. So on average, there will be about six windows for prescribed burns where we're meeting all the weather parameters, the fuel conditions, and the smoke management guidelines. So it's a very few days in a full year that we can actually implement a prescribed burn. That's why it's important to be ready and to get out there and do it when everything is in prescription. So for a controlled burn, you do all this planning, you do all this preparation, months and months of work. What happens if something goes wrong? Controlled burns don't always go as planned, and we try to learn from our mistakes, but sometimes the weather forecast is off. Sometimes we um, put too much fire on the ground in the way that we do our lighting and get things a little too hot. You might notice that on a few of our areas on the Dobson's Knob burn where you can see where we had to, we had some timber that were killed because we, we put a little bit too much fire out there. But as we go, we're trying to learn from our mistakes and get better at at doing our control burning, and we're always learning every time we do a burn.
And I think everyone's seen pictures of, especially fires out west with these helicopters dropping huge amounts of water on fires. Why can't we just do that? Why can't we just bring in fire trucks and a, and a helicopter to stop wildfires once they start? So working with helicopters, they can drop between 100 and 300 gallons of water at a time on wildfires. Uh, that basically buys firefighters time. It won't put the fire out on its own. Firefighters have to physically get into the areas that have burnt with hand tools and chainsaws and actually put a fuel break in place um, to extinguish a fire. So, you know, when you see these helicopters with the big buckets underneath them, uh, know that they're buying the firefighters some time, but without some hard work and elbow grease, that fire's not going to be completely extinguished. One tool we can use in fire suppression is aerial retardant, which is delivered by aircraft. It's been a lot of years since we've used, used them on the Grandfather Ranger District, but it's still something you could see out west. And Those airplanes deliver this slurry onto the ground, and again, it's just for buying time. Um, those retardant drops usually don't put the fire out, but it does allow firefighters time to uh, get in and put in the fuel break. Even out west where they still use retardant a lot, there's a lot of thought that goes into putting that retardant out. They try to keep it out of streams and rivers and you've got retardant maps and areas in wilderness or, or just areas in, in riparian zones that there's absolutely no retardant allowed. And here in North Carolina, we do have no retardant maps, no retardant area maps um, in case we were to use a use a air tanker yeah just to add on to that a little bit we've we've got good job security and there's no way to put out fires without without those man hours and actually those firefighters getting in there and and removing that fuel and having a good fuel break and the only way to do that is by manpower or machinery in the places we can use dozers which is is not uh, not many areas on our district it takes some hard work well, now that we know what wildland firefighters do, why don't you guys tell us how someone becomes a wildland firefighter? Most firefighters enjoy the outdoors and, and love being outside and, and like hiking, but there are a few basic qualifications. Um, we have a lot of training based on weather, and we have uh, one class is S-190 is an intro to fire weather. Then a S-130 is a basic firefighter training course. And then there are physical guidelines. Um, to be qualified for wildland fire, we have to do a pack test, and that's where we carry a 45-pound pack for three miles and 45 minutes. And we do that every year to maintain our qualifications. Two other classes required to be a wildland firefighter are ICS-100. We manage wildland fires with the incident command system, and, and that class is a basic introduction to the different positions in a fire. Normally, you'd have a command, you'd have a logistics person, you'd have an operations person, finance to keep the bills paid. A firefighter would learn all these general functions in that introductory class. Another class is L-180. It's a leadership class. And so it's an opportunity for folks to see how they, where they fit in on a fire crew and to learn that everyone has a voice out there on the fire line and to pay attention. And if you see something, say something. It's a really, really good class for everybody, I think, as far as knowing what's going on around you. If you have more questions on what it takes to be a wildland firefighter, you can go to the website, www.nwcg. Gov. It's for the National Wildfire Coordinating Group, and there are some tabs there that, that run through all these requirements. Two of the major fires we talked about um, 
were caused by abandoned campfires. So it would be a good time for us to just remind you, um, rather than have no campfires at all, just be responsible and be sure you put it out. Get a bucket of water and stir those ashes and be sure that campfire's out before you leave your campsite for the weekend. To add on to putting that campfire out, I'd just like to say that, you know, we've talked about a lot of the benefits of fire and prescribed fire and what a great tool it is to use in the forest. But one of my biggest fears is getting somebody burn up in a in a wildfire and there's so many visitors out there hiking the trails and then we've got so many homes adjacent to forest land um, it's a real danger just keep that in mind when you're out there camping and always make sure to put those campfires out make sure they're cold before you leave yeah we've talked a lot about the positives of fire but that is a true concern that we always have on mind as ecologists and firefighters is there anything else you guys would like to add Fire is a natural process. It would be here with or without us. It's the decisions we make and how we manage these fires and for what reasons that can be the big difference in, in the future health of the forest. Yeah, taking your children out in the woods will ensure that we have future generations of hunters and ecologists and firefighters and, and folks to enjoy the national forest. Well said. Well, thank you all so much for listening again. Thanks to Greg and Chase for joining me, giving us the benefit of their expertise and their experience. This has been the Fire Learning Trail Podcast. If you need more information, you can contact the Grandfather Ranger District Office or the Nature Conservancy in Asheville, North Carolina. CDs will be available at information cabins in the Pisgah National Forest. And feel free to use our hashtag, GoodFire. G-O-O-D-F-I-R-E when posting about your visit to this trail on social media.